The boys chatter in the back seat. Their father is silent as he drives. They sense something is wrong, but they're not quite sure what. They've never heard their parents argue like that before. But when they left the house, their mom was quiet and nowhere to be found. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 142, The Murder of Refiwe Seroba and Sarah Makwati. This episode is sponsored by the brand new podcast from Bright Rock and Change Media, Abakoti, the storytellers. You know I'm completely sold on the power of stories. They have immense life-changing impact for both the storyteller and the listener. So anytime there's a new platform for people to tell their stories of becoming thought leaders, game changers and life winners, I'm on board with that. And when those storytellers are women, who, let's face it, for so long have had their stories told for them, I'm definitely behind that. Abak Ngoti, The Storytellers, is hosted by powerhouse women in media, communication and business, Ruhima Essa and Lebo Biko. Here they are with a promo for their podcast. Abakoti, The Storytellers, is a podcast that amplifies the stories of phenomenal African women. Enjoy groundbreaking conversations with myself, Rehema Issa, and my co-host, Lebu Biko, and our special guests as we unlock local, intercontinental, and intergenerational stories of women who are thought leaders and change makers in their respective fields. Abakoti, The Storytellers, is made just for you by Bright Rock. The first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Subscribe to Abakotli on Apple Podcasts, Google Play or Spotify or go to changepodcasts.co.za. I highly recommend subscribing to Abakotli, the storytellers, on the platform you're using to listen right now or head over to changepodcasts.co.za. A huge thank you to Abakotli, the storytellers for supporting True Crime South Africa. Since 2019, True Crime South Africa has been telling the stories of the victims of violent crime in South Africa. The podcast is independent. That means no big or even little corporates fund it. And that's just the way I like it. And it's the only independent podcast in South Africa that consistently charts in the top 10. Keeping a podcast like this going is time-consuming, and for the most part, it remains a one-woman process. It's me. I'm the one woman. You? Yes, you. Are the reason this podcast continues to flourish and help bring in tips on missing person and cold cases. If you'd like to help keep the show running, please consider supporting our sponsors, signing up to Patreon or PayPal, Follow the show on the socials, as the kids say, and share it with your fellow partners in crime. You can find our social links and learn more about our sponsors at True Crime South Africa forward slash donate. Shout out to this week's Patreon and PayPal superstars. A huge thank you goes out to Melody Fandamava, Raiden Drosky, 
Ma Modebe Ramodebe, Mandy Nievenhout, and Elizabeth Cole for your support on Patreon. Thank you so much, everyone. Patreon supporters get one additional exclusive episode a month, a shout out on the pod, and other exclusive contents, including Q&As with me as and when it's available. It's a minimum of $1 a month. I think you should do it. Please. And thank you. Keba. Today's case is as much about the victim's family members as it is about the victims themselves. Sometimes the system employed to hand down justice can be more traumatizing than the violent crime itself. Sometimes the line between culpable and not become so blurred it's hard to remember the facts over the fiction. And a process that's supposed to be there to see the difference between the two is harnessed by an offender and used to their benefit. In researching today's case, I predominantly used the judgment from the trial as well as a few media articles. So let's get into episode 142. The murders of Refiwe Seroba and Sarah Makwati. The following episode may contain sensitive material, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Two murdered women, one perpetrator. Eight and a half years, two psychiatric hospitals, nine psychiatrists, 13 high court judges, 30 postponements, countless victims. I don't usually start with a rundown of what you can expect in an episode, but I think those numbers are vital to prepare you for the insanity of what you're about to hear. I know all too well that victims and their families are often incredibly re-victimized by the legal system, and this case is a perfectly horrible example of this. The background we have on the victims is very minimal, unfortunately. Sarah and Refiwe were sisters. They came from a really close-knit family, and this closeness continued on even when the sisters had married and started their own families. Sarah married Basaming Makwati and had a son and daughter with him. Sarah worked as an assistant at a doctor's surgery in Bramfontein. Refiwe was married to Franz Seroba. The couple had twin boys together, as well as an older daughter. Both Refiwe and Franz worked, and their family lived a comfortable middle-class life in their home in Baklu, Santon. Just a note that you'll notice I haven't named the children in this case. They are already all adults by now, but they were minors when the case happened, and although it would be easy enough for anyone to find their names in the media articles that covered this case, I don't feel comfortable using their names here. I feel they've already been through more than enough, and although I do hope that talking about their respective mothers and aunts' case is helpful in remembering the terrible circumstances that took their lives, 
as well as the ordeal that followed, I don't feel like it's a great idea to tout the children's names around just for the sake of proving that I'd found them. For the most part, Rafiwe and France's marriage seemed, at least on the surface, not too dissimilar to most others. Their children would report that they'd never witnessed any arguments or violence between their parents, and the boys said that they hadn't even heard their parents speak angrily to one another before. It's important to note, though, that the boys were very young, only 10 years old when the incident in question took place, so it's entirely possible that they just weren't seeing or hearing what others were. It really does seem, though, that the couple did a pretty good job of hiding the struggles they were experiencing. Most of this stemmed from France's apparent mental health issues. In the early 2000s, the business that France Soroba had been running for years fell on hard times. As is completely natural, this resulted in him experiencing a depressive episode. Situational depression is not uncommon for the vast majority of people when dealing with severe stress of this kind or loss of a loved one, but what seemed to emerge in France around this time was not situational depression. And really, we don't know if this was the first emergence of the serious mental health issues that would seemingly plague him going forward, but it certainly is the first documented evidence of it. From 2003, France began seeing mental health practitioners. He was placed on medication to help stabilize his moods, and although a definitive diagnosis was never given, he was treated for possible symptoms of bipolar disorder with psychotic features, and sometimes even schizophrenia was mentioned as a possibility. Now, some of the psychiatrists he saw at the time would be called as witnesses at France's later trial, and it's important to note that their testimony varied widely as to the symptoms and possible diagnoses they'd seen. They all also gave very different versions of what they believed was troubling France the most, and none actually mentioned his business going south. In therapy, it seems, France was telling some of his doctors that it was his wife, Befiwe, that was triggering him. The man claimed to have an almost obsessive desire to be close to his wife, and simultaneously believed, without any solid evidence, that anyone could find, that she was being unfaithful. Some of these practitioners also mentioned emotional and physical abuse of Refiwe by France, which many people seem to not know was happening at the time. I will say that Refiwe denied the allegation that she was unfaithful to anyone who asked and her children and family also said that there was absolutely no incident of infidelity on her part, to their knowledge. But France seemed to think differently, and nothing anyone could say would change his mind. As a result, he became very controlling to the woman, and insisted that they were together every minute of the day unless they were at work. And even then... He called her regularly to stay in contact. Rifiwe really didn't feel that the psychiatric medication her husband had been taking was making any difference, 
And so the couple decided to take a more traditional and spiritual route and consult a Sangoma. It seems that Franz did continue taking his prescribed medication for a while, even after the Sangoma had given them Muti, but soon he stopped both the prescribed and the traditional medicines and pretty much went cold turkey. Around this time, Franz spent two weeks in a psychiatric facility, but even that seemed to have little positive impact on his mental health. The interesting part of this is, although his private life was falling down around him and his mental health seemed to be spiralling out of control, there was very little effect on Franz's work. One would think that someone dealing with this level of mental health difficulty would be almost unable to function in their work environment, but that certainly wasn't the case with Franz. Instead, his employer felt that between 2003 and 2005, he was an impeccable employee. They'd known he'd taken a fortnight off for health reasons, but had no idea it was mental health related. It was almost like France was two people. The work France, who operated efficiently and to a high standard, and the after-hours France, who was unhinged, increasingly controlling and paranoid. It's a very strange dichotomy, which anyone who has experienced either their own or a loved one's mental health challenges will attest to. Significant mental health challenges impact people's lives across the board, for the most part. Certain conditions, like depression and anxiety, can be less debilitating for some than others in a work context. But once we start talking about challenges like bipolar disorder, paranoid delusions, and schizophrenia, these are generally not conditions you're going to be able to pigeonhole off into certain sections of your life. In fact, many people who are diagnosed with some of these conditions are actually unable to work and have to apply for disability. But between 2003 and 2006, Franz Seroba seemed to only exhibit these symptoms in his personal life, and even then, they really only seemed to be witnessed by a few people, mostly his wife and the medical practitioners who were treating him. He would later say that during this time, he'd been terrified of everyone around him. He claimed that he even felt threatened by a six-month-old baby of a neighbor, he said he also felt that his wife's family were out to get him and became extremely wary of them, and this would become rather important later. Over the festive season in 2006, Sarah Makwati's son visited his aunt Refiwe's home. The young man sensed a tension in the air in the home, and when he walked with Refiwe to the shop, she made a confession that surprised him. But if he were told her nephew that she was struggling significantly in her marriage to France, she said he'd become increasingly controlling and paranoid over the past few months, and this walk to the shop was the first time she'd been allowed out of the house in days, and she was only allowed to leave because she was accompanied by her nephew. Refiwe said that she was starting to feel fe to feel fearful of her husband 
and although she was trying to ensure her children weren't aware of the problems, she also thought she may have to leave France soon. Thefiwe's nephew was surprised. He'd had no idea there were problems in his aunt's marriage. Thefiwe said that she'd spoken to very few people about the problems at home, and really only confided in his mother, Sarah, who'd started encouraging her to leave France when he'd become physically abusive and controlling. Thefiwe's nephew didn't really think much about the conversation again. He figured his aunt would sort things out or leave her husband, and he was glad to know that his mom was supporting her. Just a month later, though, this conversation would haunt him. On Saturday the 20th of January 2007, Refiwe and France were at home with their twin boys. The boys played PlayStation for a bit and then went outside to play soccer. Their parents had planned to go and pay school fees for their daughter for the year later that day. The twins would later say that they'd been playing in the garden when one heard their parents arguing. The sound got his attention because he'd never heard them argue. Then the other boy heard a popping sound. Both boys became quite afraid and were discussing whether they should go inside when their dad walked out of the house with a plastic bag containing an A4 envelope and told the boys to get in the car as they were going to their grandmother. The twins wanted to say goodbye to their mom first, but Franz Soroba told them that she was in the bath and that they should get in the car right away. The boys were a little confused, because their mom had already been dressed and ready to go just minutes before they'd run outside, but they obeyed their father and got into his car. From there, France drove the boys to his mother, the boy's grandmother's house in Soweto. He parked in the driveway and told the boys to run up to the door and knock. As his mother opened and welcomed the boys inside, France drove off without a word. On that Saturday morning, Sarah Makwati, Refiwe's sister, was working in her assistant role at a doctor's office in Bromfontein. She'd been working for the doctor for many years, and her boss had no problem with her children and other family members coming to visit her when the practice was quiet. That morning, Sarah's daughter was visiting, and her son, the young man who Refiwe had confided in a month before, was on his way. A patient was also in the reception, waiting to see the doctor, when Franz Saroba walked in. He was not an unfamiliar face at the practice either, and Sarah wasn't surprised to see him. She greeted him, as did her daughter. The daughter would later say that Franz wasn't behaving strangely at all. She noticed he was a little tense when he hugged her, but she thought nothing of it in the moment. Sarah asked where Refiwe was, and Franz said that she was at home doing the laundry. She asked where the twins were, and he said they were with Refiwe at home, playing PlayStation. Franz just stood there for a moment, and then started to walk out. Sarah asked where he was going, and he said he would be back in a moment. CCTV cameras would later show that Franz had gone out to his car, which was parked in the street outside the doctor's office, and collected a plastic bag with an A4 padded envelope inside it, 
He walked back inside the building, through security, and back into the doctor's rooms. Sarah's daughter said that when Franz had walked back into the office, he'd reached inside the packet and the envelope and pulled out a gun. He then walked straight up to her mother and shot Sarah twice in the head. Sarah's daughter began to scream, as did the patient who was still waiting for the doctor, and Franz turned on his heel and walked calmly out of the office. As he'd fired the shots, Sarah's son had been walking up the stairs to visit his mother. He'd heard the shots and then the screams, and then saw Franz walking down the stairs. He asked him what was going on up there, and Franz said he had no idea and carried on walking. The young man ran upstairs and burst into the office to find his sister kneeling over the body of his mother. As the cold understanding of what had just happened occurred to him, the young man reached for his phone. He had to warn his aunt, make sure that she and the children got out of the house before France got back there. He called Refuwe's number, but it just rang. He tried a few more times and then called the police. Meanwhile, Franz Seroba was driving back to his home in Baklou, but he too was on the phone. He called his brother and simply told him that he needed to go to his house as there was trouble there. Franz's brother was unable to, but phoned their other brother who lived nearby and he started out toward the house. Police arrived very quickly at the doctor's office. The doctor Sarah worked for was attempting CPR, but soon informed her horrified daughter that her mother had passed away and there was nothing more that could be done. As soon as police arrived, Sarah's son informed them that he thought his aunt was also in danger, quickly explaining that it had been his uncle who'd shot his mother and there was a possibility he might harm his aunt too, the police officer got the address from the young man and called some of his colleagues to attend that address and check up on Refiwe. As traumatized as Sarah's son was about the death of his mother, he knew that she would want him to protect Refiwe and her children, so he set out for her house, hoping to meet police there. Before any police could arrive at France and Refiwe's house, his brother, who'd been told to check on the house because France said there was trouble there, arrived. The man found the door unlocked and made his way inside, calling out for Refiwe. As he entered the lounge, he found his sister-in-law lying at the bottom of the stairs. Refiwe had been shot twice and she was deceased. The man ran through the house and was relieved not to find the children there. He was about to call police when he heard a car pull up outside. Franz Seroba walked in the door and looked at his brother, but didn't say a word to him. His brother said Franz looked very strange. His eyes were bulging out of his head, and yet his lips pulled back, baring his teeth like an animal. He had the gun in his hand, and was pacing up and down, breathing heavily. His brother became frightened and ran outside, just as several cars converged on the home. Sarah's son arrived at almost exactly the same time as the police did. 
Francis' brother told him what he'd seen inside, and Refiwe's nephew realized with horror that he was too late to save her. He'd lost both his mom and his aunt in one day. The police were trying to ascertain what was going on when Franz Soroba walked out of the house. His expression was now completely different from what his brother had seen, and he appeared almost calm and subdued. The police officer asked Franz what had happened, and he told him that his wife was dead. When he asked who had done this, Franz said, It was me. Franz was handcuffed and showed the police officer where his gun was. He placed it back into the safety box he kept it in. He also handed over his firearm license when asked. Over the next few hours, phone calls and visits spread the horrific news among the Seroba and Makwati families. Sarah and Refiwe's 80-year-old mother learned that she had just lost both of her daughters. Refiwe's children were informed that their mother was dead, and the twins had to come to terms with the fact that what they had heard just moments before their father bundled them into the car was in fact the sound of their mother's last moments. As far as murder cases go, this one from an investigation perspective seemed cut and dry. France was arrested, he never once denied committing the murders. Undoubtedly, both grieving families would have thought that within perhaps just a few months, maybe even less, the court proceedings would be concluded and they could get on with the never-ending process of figuring out their new normal without Refiwe and Sarah. But that was not how things were going to go. Not even close. Franz Saroba almost immediately made it clear that his defense was going to be psychological. As a result, he was sent for a psychiatric assessment at Stagfontein Hospital. It would be just the first of countless interactions he would have with both state-appointed and privately procured psychiatrists. Franz was initially found fit to stand trial and granted 20,000 rand bail. The victim's families were very upset, but they had no idea what was still to come. The murders, of course, occurred in 2007. The first media discussion of court proceedings starts in 2012, five years later. The delay was predominantly on France's side. He regularly pushed back against the state psychiatric assessments and requested his own psychiatrist to assess him. He would eventually also have a follow-up assessment granted at Vescopies. In all, during that period, he was assessed by nine psychiatrists, all of which said he was fit to stand trial. Some differed in opinion, though, on whether France had actually been in a culpable state of mind at the time he committed the offence. At his first plea date, France pleaded not guilty as a result of pathological incapacity. In other words, although he admitted physically carrying out the murders, he felt he could be found not guilty of the charge of murder because at the time he did not have the mental capacity to tell the difference between right and wrong. 
his plea statement would read in part as follows, quote, would not accept the wrongfulness of his actions, and as he was not criminally responsible at the time of the incidents, as he suffered from a mental illness and defect which caused him to be incapable of acting in accordance with the appreciation of the rightful or wrongful nature of his actions, end quote. It was stated further that, quote, the day of the incidents he and his deceased wife were on their way preparing to go and pay for their daughter's school fees. He went to the shop to buy bread. Upon his return, when he was back in the house, he experienced a sensation that made him feel huge, as huge as a room. Around him everything was black. He felt as if he was being lifted up to the roof. The blackness, earlier referred to, continued, and he felt as if he was falling down to the ground. He came to his senses in the police cells. End quote. Essentially, France was claiming that he had some form of psychotic break, which had led to the murders of Refiwe and Sarah. Besides France's own constant requests for different evaluations, the psychiatrists themselves actually ended up contributing to the ridiculous delays. Some doctors arrived at court to testify and gave testimony that was different from what was in their reports. As a result, their testimony could not be accepted, and France had to go back for new evaluations. Each time the evaluation didn't come back with something that met his defence, he would request a further private evaluation. With all the delays, many of the psychiatrists were no longer available to testify when it came time to, for various reasons. Some had left the practice, some had emigrated, and as the defence had the right to cross-examine the witness, they couldn't just present the report as testimony. The evaluators had to be present in court. And so, the delays continued. Added to this were the constant and almost normal delays that happen regularly in South African courts anyway. Victims and their families will arrive for a scheduled court date, spend the money to get there, take days off work, arrange childcare, prepare themselves emotionally, and then, in five minutes, they're told, sorry, postponed. This happened to the Soroba and Makwati families 30 times. And so, understandably, by the time 2012 rolled around and the press started giving airtime to the case, family members were seething. Almost every time they appeared in court, it was in front of a different judge. In all, they would see 13 high court judges before the trial actually began in earnest. 13. Some of the judges were understanding of the family's often vocal anger about the delays, but many weren't. One judge decided that he wanted Sarah's husband arrested for speaking out of turn in court because he was fed up with the delays. The man's elderly father had to stand up and beg for the court's mercy for his son. The vast majority of the testimony that was heard from 2012 onward was from psychiatrists. 
the facts of the case were for the most part not in dispute. Refiwe and Sierra were murdered, both shot twice with bullets that matched France's registered firearm. France admitted shooting them. It was the why that was in contest. The state's case, presented by a long-suffering prosecutor from the NPA, Leonie Makoko, was relatively short and concise. The true debates would happen in cross-examination of the psychiatrists. In this evidence, two very different versions emerged. France's version was that he'd been suffering from serious mental health conditions from the early 2000s, which had only increased in severity and culminated in him having some form of psychotic break in 2007 when he'd committed the murders. There were a bunch of incredible claims from his end, including him having felt as though he was possessed, him suffering from obsessive and delusional behavior, which had focused on his wife and, since her murder, transferred onto religion. There were some psychiatrists, mostly those who'd been hired by France privately, who believed he may have had a psychotic break during the murders, but on the other end of the scale, the vast majority of the psychiatrists who'd assessed him felt this was not the case, and that while he'd suffered with a general depressive disorder, he did not present with any symptoms of psychosis. A few of the psychiatrists even testified that they believed, in the assessments where he'd presented with bizarre behavior, he was, in fact, malingering. Malingering is a term used by medical professionals to describe the falsification or profound exaggeration of illness, whether physical or mental, to gain external benefits. And looking at France's mental health history, some professionals believed the malingering had started long before the murders. The fact that France's symptoms seemed to only be pigeonholed to one area of his life was suspicious to most mental health practitioners. His behavior around the murders also seemed to indicate a switching on and switching off of a psychotic-like behavior. Some admitted that psychosis didn't always present as a continual lack of normal functioning and that some people could experience psychotic symptoms and also seem very normal to certain people in their lives or for brief periods. It was really the nature of his behavior during the assessments that gave these practitioners red flags, though. Whenever France was assessed for more than a few days at a time, his behavior varied widely. The longer assessments all concluded that no impairing mental health condition existed, while the shorter, often private, assessments indica indicated some level of psychosis. Perhaps, the witnesses suggested, France was just really good at malingering for short periods, but not so good at keeping it up over time. So essentially, this became the question that the court needed to answer. Was France Soroba really completely incompetent from a mental capacity perspective at the time of the murders, or was he trying to appear as such? 
In heartbreaking testimony, each of the witnesses that day told their story of the horrors they'd seen, heard and experienced. Their testimony was heard almost seven years after the fact. The children were now adults, the other family members almost a decade older, but each and every witness impressed the judge with their clarity of memory and how they were able to express themselves. Between 2012 and 2015, yes, another three years, the courtroom became a place where the deep rifts that had been caused by Franz Soroba's actions that day were evident. There were distinct divisions between the families that had once been so close. Those who supported France, despite his terrible actions, faced off against those who simply wanted justice for Sarah and Refiwe. France also took the stand in his own defence, insisting that something had overtaken him that day. He described feeling like he was lifted up to the roof of his house and then the next thing he remembered was being in police custody and snapping out of whatever strange state he'd been in. Finally, eight and a half years after Refiwe and Sarah were shot dead without warning by Franz Saroba, one of the 13 judges who'd worked on the case was ready to hand down a judgment. On the 14th of July 2015, Judge Dario Dosio dismissed France's claims of incompetence and instead found that he was indeed guilty of two charges of murder. Tears flowed from all sides of the courtroom for different reasons. Some just grateful it was over, others thankful for justice, and a few feeling like neither determination would really have been the best outcome. One of those people was Refiwe and France's daughter. The young woman had not been at home that day, and she'd dealt with a lot of anger toward her father over the years. But she'd chosen to take the stand in mitigation of sentence, to ask the judge that he not deny her the privilege of at least one of her parents being with her. She cried as she explained that her choice to stand by her father had been incredibly difficult, and she still did not understand what had happened that day. But in her heart, she felt better having a relationship with her father rather than holding anger toward him. The judge, though, did not feel that Franz Soroba deserved any sense of understanding. In handing down his sentence, he said that it was clear to him that France had acted with direct intent on the day of the murders, and he'd been very clear-minded. The judge pointed out aspects of the crime which indicated pre-planning and cunning action. He said he couldn't accept that France was just completely out of his mind that day when he'd very clearly selected his two victims, ensured he got his children out of the house, concealed his weapon from the security at the doctor's office in order to gain access, driven to several different locations, and spoken very lucidly with many that day. The judge hinted at the possibility that it had perhaps been France's plan all along to take what he saw 
as vengeance on his wife, who he felt was not behaving the way she should, and he perhaps set out to build a mental health defence. Either way, the judge said, Franz Soroba was most certainly guilty of the crimes, and he saw very few mitigating circumstances. In passing down sentence, though, the judge did veer away from the possible life sentences on the table. When there is significant mental health evidence presented, which could result in an appeal, judges will sometimes deviate from a life sentence to avoid the sentence being reduced too significantly on appeal. As such, Judge Dossio handed down 18 years per murder to Franz Seroba. Nine years of the sentence of the second murder would run concurrently with the 18 years of the first, meaning he would be required to serve an effective 27 years, but would be eligible for parole from halfway through that period. It is almost impossible for us to say whether or not Franz Soroba really experienced the mental health conditions he claimed he did. It is clear that his thinking around his wife and his abuse and control of her was abnormal behavior, but that certainly isn't a mental health defense. The state's version was that France had become increasingly controlling and abusive of his wife, and when she'd threatened to leave him and said her sister was supporting her in this decision, he decided that she was not going to leave him, and he would kill both of them instead. The fact that so many different psychiatrists were involved in this case, and so many of them had very different views, is strange to me. We don't really see that very often. It's not uncommon for professionals to have slightly differing views, but in this case, it was almost like each of these practitioners was seeing a different person. And maybe that's where the answer lies. Maybe they were. Perhaps everyone was seeing a different version of France. Cases like this are some of the type I really want to talk about on this podcast. This case was suggested to me on email by a listener. I don't know whether he wishes for me to mention his name, so I won't. But I really do thank him, because without him, I likely would never have heard about this case. The families had been living with this nightmare for five years, until Sarah and Refiwe's murders were spoken about in any meaningful way in the mainstream media. To many, they were just another two names that got lost in the huge number of victims of violent crime intimate partner crime, and gender-based violence in this country. I heard something the other day that really made me think about how I speak about victims on this podcast, specifically female victims. If you ask a woman who she is, she will almost always describe herself in terms of the roles she plays the ways in which she serves others. If you don't think this is true, listen for this the next time someone asks a woman around you 
or you, who you are. For a multitude of reasons, we define ourselves by the way we serve others. Mother, friend, sister, daughter, wife. As though it is in our service to others that we are allowed some right to exist. And I know I've done that with victims before, because it feels like a way to make listeners realize that these people were human beings. It feels like the only way to make you understand that Sarah and Refiwe had value. And come to think of it, it's kind of ridiculous. Not just for female victims, but male victims too. I'm sure... Sarah and Refiwe were incredibly proud to be all the labels they carried about the ways they served others. But that's not who they were. And it's also not why they had value. Their value, like every other victim, every other human being, was and is intrinsic. Already there before they became Mother, wife, sister, friend, co-worker. And it remains long after their deaths. Their cases, their justice, were almost lost in a quagmire of ridiculous administrative failings and purposeful delays for self-preservation. Almost. So it truly is an honor to be able to speak about what happened to them today. Because they are Sarah and Refiwe. And they are the victims whose stories we need to hear. Refiwe Seroba, Sarah Magwati, Reshchenti. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on Spotify or the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then. Thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. A healthier, happier, more productive life starts with good sleep. Make sure you invest in the right bed. Dial-A-Bed stocks the best bed brands at the best prices. Shop at 76 stores nationwide or online.